Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. British author, social commentator, Atlanticist, and Americanophile, Douglas Murray presents an alternative commentary to the panoply of endorsements given to the 1619 Project. Let's listen in on what he thinks and has to say. The 1619 Project tries to completely reframe all of American history to say that the heroic story of America is not a story of heroism, it's one of slavery and subjugation, which is why they start in 1619. Everybody's past is filled with things that they can be told to be shameful of, and some things that they should be feeling some shame about. But the overwhelming story of America is not one of shame, but of pride. It isn't one of failure, but of success. It isn't one which we should be cringing about and forever having to apologize about, but say, look, the thing that marks us out isn't that we had slavery. The things that marks us out is that we did away with it. We fought to get rid of it. We paid our dues to stop it. We made ourselves poorer for a period in order to stop it. Is that the case around the world? Is that the case even around the world now? No, no, it isn't. How many slaves are there in the world today? It's estimated about 40 million, four zero million. I've met slaves myself on my travels uh, around the world. It's a terrible, terrible thing. There are more slaves in the world today than there were in the 19th century. So here's a suggestion. Instead of falling for the people who hate us and the people who want to reframe our narrative and tell us that our country in America was started in slavery in 1619 and that it's forever there and so on. Instead of falling for these people, how about we concentrate on the world as it is now and try to make it better? These people want to take us to the past. They want to talk about race. They want to talk about racism. They want to talk about the past endlessly, a past that they are trying to reframe in a hostile light. I want us to focus on the future and the future to get the future right, we have to get the past right. And everyone in the world knows that the West is best, not because it comes from white people, but because it works. It's our economies that work. It's our societies yes. that work. It is, with all its flaws, our system of law that works. People want to come here because it works. We should show pride in that, and we should be able to build on that. But in order to do that, we need to know what it is we're defending and what it is that we are up against. Instead of understanding the history of racism as, well, racism is a highly regrettable and ugly human trait, which is consistent across all human societies that we know about, and it is a part of Western history. Instead, the whole of Western history is made into a history of racism, in which racism was the guiding force when any fair estimate would see it as being an element within Western history, but by no means the thing that drove Western history. Historically speaking, it would have been highly unusual to be opposed to slavery in almost any era. And there were lots of reasons for that. Why are the Enlightenment philosophers under particular attack at the moment? And there are various explanations you could give for that. One is there is a genuine overdue reckoning, that there is a form of Enlightenment, let's say fundamentalism at the moment, that views figures of the Enlightenment as particularly needing this sort of scouring and reapproach. Another is that they happened to have the misfortune to live in an era in which both the slave trade and colonialism, currently seen as the two great wrongs of history of the West, were going on, and they didn't spend enough 
of their time countering them. And Immanuel Kant should have spent more time addressing slavery and less time addressing all of the questions that he addressed. And that rather than talking about superstition and trying to pull that apart, David Hume should have been interested in colonialism and on and on. So that's another explanation. And a third explanation, which I think is perhaps more persuasive, is that actually, if you go for the Enlightenment philosophers, you get one of the absolutely key things to assault if you're going to assault the West, which are the ideas of rationalism and reason and the application of the scientific method and much more. But the reason I mention this is because, of course, what's so fascinating is that there are two aspects of the slavery thing in particular that need to be delved into. One is that thing of, well, everybody did it throughout history. And there's a counter which Kendi, among others, do, which is, well, Western slavery was worse because it was race-based. And by the way, that's absolute nonsense. I mean, countless societies had effectively race-based slavery, and indeed it's going on today in the Middle East and in Africa. But there was a specific reason, actually, why during the Enlightenment period, and I cite Thomas Jefferson on this, because he's a very interesting figure, trying to think this through as they were going through it. One of the reasons why Thomas Jefferson is so interesting is because he is one of the most thoughtful people of his era, was still not aware of whether or not there was an answer or which way the answer went to what was still a live conversation then, which was the monogenesis and polygenesis argument. That was the argument over whether or not all the human races were from the same stock, as it were, or whether we were all from different lines. That debate seems obvious to us now because it got answered later in the 19th century. It wasn't obvious at that time, and people like Jefferson were trying to do what they could with it. So there was one version of the defense of slavery, which was, well, these are all totally different people. But then, of course, you have to counter that with the fact that, and again, Voltaire made this point, what is the greater evil? To sell somebody and buy somebody of a different country, a different race, and so on, or to sell your neighbor or your brother or the member of your community. Now, of course, just as it was when Voltaire asked the question, it's an exceedingly uncomfortable question to ask today. And I don't ask it in order to say, well, there's an obvious answer. But as everybody knows, the slave trade only existed because people in Africa were selling their brothers and their neighbors and raiding neighboring towns of people who looked exactly like them and selling them to other black people in Africa, some of whom ended up in the slave trade going across the Atlantic, many more of whom went through the slave trade that went to Arabia. So it took an awfully long time for our species to even begin, and we're not there yet by any means. I've met people in my own life who are slaves, were born slaves in Africa and elsewhere. This is by no means solved by our species, but we look back at it now as if it was perfectly obvious. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
Many of the people, like William Wilberforce, who were most prominent in arguing the case for the abolition of slavery, were driven comprehensively by their Christian faith. So, as my late friend Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to say, the claim that morality is self-evident is self-evidently untrue. These people were driven by a specific idea of morality and a specific set of values and indeed virtues. And it's a modern myth that we would have got there anyway. But the sanctity of the individual life and the autonomy of every individual, the necessity of every individual having autonomy was at the absolute base of the desire, first of all, to ban slavery in the British Empire. And then maybe people would say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you, Douglas, having been born and brought up in the UK? But a pretty remarkable thing that the British Empire then decided to spend a considerable amount of blood and treasure policing the high seas in order to stop slavery elsewhere. British sailors losing their lives, boarding ships without sails that they would search the cargo holds for and discover were, for instance, a Brazilian slave trading ship trying to sneak through in disguise because Brazil didn't get rid of slavery until the 1880s, formally. And Britain policed the seas for this for many years. Thousands of sailors lost their lives. And in the end, the actual cost of eradicating the slave trade has been shown by a number of modern historians to have actually cost Britain more, first of all, in the actual endeavor. Secondly, most importantly, in the paying out, the buying out effectively of companies engaged in the slave trade in order to make sure that they didn't continue their trade. And thirdly, in the increased prices that everybody in Britain had to pay throughout the 19th century because of the need to pay for goods that were coming from non-slave trading places. These ended up being an exercise more costly than the benefits accrued during the period of slavery. So the reason why I mention this isn't actually just because of the way I speak or the fact that I happen to come from the UK. It's because it then gets us to this very interesting question, which is what would restitution ever look like? And what I notice is question of reparations, as it's currently called. What would restitution look like on a number of historic wrongs? And I've been very struck in the last two decades in particular by the fact that we have people, and again, Nietzsche puts his finger on it with uncanny precision. I'm struck by the number of people who rip at long-closed wounds rip them open, and then scream at everyone about how hurt they are. Because in actual fact, on a whole range of issues of what we're now reminded are historic wrongs, something like considerable restitution happened an awfully long time ago. You still hear people saying, it's extremely popular in American discourse, that America never addressed the issue of slavery. And, you know, you sort of think, well, fighting a long and bloody civil war about it would have been one obvious way that they clearly tried to address it. And even that today is poo-pooed. A number of contemporary historians say, oh, it wasn't really about slavery. It was a different power struggle. It never is about the thing that the thing was about. But I'm very keen to address these ugly, difficult corners of it. So I say, if you are interested in restitution of making atonement for any wrongs in the past, you have to look at what actually has already happened in the past by way of atonement. When the so-called 1619 riots kicked off, when the riots after the death of George Floyd began in 2020, somebody says they should be called the 1619 riots. And the woman who fronted the 1619 project at the New York Times, so we're not talking about some kooky, far-out fringe publication, says the 1619 riots, I'd be honoured. And these are the riots where, sure, they start to pull down statues of General Lee. Okay, wouldn't go to the wall for that one at all. But then it's Jefferson, and then it's Lincoln, 
And then it's absolutely every damn figure in American history who ends up getting assailed. That's no longer a theoretical thing. That's not just students reading Derrida. That's not just papers on Foucault. This is the manifestation of some of their thought, often by people who've never read them. But this is long ago the spilling out even of their own thought, simply into this thing where the era decides everything in our own past must be scoured. What's to come after? They don't tell us any more than they tell us what the other ways of knowing might be in what they're doing and pulled everything down as they are trying, pulled down all of our stories, all of our heroes, all of our history, all of our culture, read our culture as a story, not of admiration for the world and learning from the world, but actually theft from the world. If they did this on everything and succeeded as they're doing at the moment, what is it exactly at the end of this other than the, again, the other ways of knowing? What is it that lies there? And the one answer you can get for people is essentially a version of that thing that Tom Wolfe described in Radical Sheep, the essay on the party at the Bernstein's apartment in New York in the early 70s. Leonard Bernstein, his wife, threw for the Black Panthers. And of course, Thomas Wolfe fantastically destroys this obscene event where the liberal elite of New York are having canapes listening to these revolutionaries describing how they want to destroy and pull down the society they're in. And there's a wonderful moment in it where I think it's Otto Preminger, one of Bernstein's friends, is sitting in his chair and he says to one of the Panthers, but what are you going to do once you have pulled down all of the existing structures? What are you going to do? And he keeps pushing this panther on it until this black panther says, you can't put a blueprint on the future, man. And Leonard Bernstein leans forward in his chair and says, you mean you're just going to wing it? And that's really what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who don't know what they're going to do. They're going to pull everything down and then wing it. I think people should be very careful of what they wish for in this. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y using the code 30605.